and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast, and I am your host, Jesse Cannon. Today, I'm very excited to be here with Evan Weiss. You probably know him from his bands Into It, Over It, Pet Symmetry, There, 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 as well as his production work. We get into all that and discuss the differences between his projects, as well as what he sees his role as a producer as, and a whole ton of other awesome stuff. second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. Tell me how a song comes into being most of the time for you. Depending on the band, generally with Intuit Over It, I have to, at this point, block off writing time. I can't be organized enough to continue to like keep my headspace open where if the band is playing shows or if we have a tour coming up or if we're rehearsing, I, I really have to compartmentalize everything I'm doing because I can't take on too many things at once anymore. I used to be able to be super good at balancing multiple dealings with Intuit Over It, whether it were like a tour or an album or any, anything like that. But now these days, it's like if I want to get writing done, I have to specifically put time aside where I'm like, this is the writing time. I'm going to hang out, you know, make sure that I'm secluded or have some open time available where I'm not thinking about touring. I'm not thinking about other records or cycles or working on someone else's material or anything. It just has to be blocked sacred time, you know? So, and, um, so when you block that time, is that a whole day? Is it a few hours a day? Is it just kind of casual? What, what does that look like? No, it'll be like it'll be like I will not go on tour, or play a single show for three months, uh-huh. and I will just sit. That like those three months are made just to be writing. So every day I'll pick up the guitar and work on something, record a little voice note, or be at the practice space with somebody. Or like in terms of last uh, for standards, you know, we just re- did a retreat all together. We just went we just went away for a month and worked on material. But it's been like that for the last three albums. So Intersections was written that way. It was like a two-month block where we were playing music every single day. Proper was really similar. Like, I actually, Proper was the first record where my booking agent told me he wouldn't put me on tour until I had a new album. So he made sure, he was like, you you will not tour until you have new material. And at first I was like, fuck, are you serious? <laughs> that, 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 that's interesting. You never you never hear that. I, I've Of all the music business stories of the last 18 years, I've never heard that way being the uh, precipitation of a record. Yeah, it's like, you, you want to make money? Like, you want to be able to pay your rent? Like you have to produce a new album now, you know, like, and, so, uh, so, and, so were you reluctant to do that? Yeah. I mean, I, so, so, I so where does thought, that come from? I mean, that reluctancy at the time with proper was that I'd never done, I'd never made an album of that was more than six. Like I'd done 52 weeks and 12 towns. These like elaborate projects, but those songs were written and recorded over long expanses of time. I never had to do an Intuit over record at that time where it was just me by myself recording 12 songs at once gotcha and so that was kind of a scary thing for me at the time because i was like man at this point into it over it's just been kind of like a song project just like a casual thing like can my brain process 12 songs at one time just by myself you know without any help you know and so proper was that first was that first step with this project i've written full-length albums and bands before and that's a lot easier because you're bouncing stuff off of other people and you know, you're not the only, maybe the only person writing material. You're not the only person who has to memorize literally every instrument 
you know, but with Into It Over It, it's so much different. I'm playing everything on the albums except for the drums. So it's, it's a challenge in and of itself just to remember the, the guitars and the vocals, let alone, you know, writing bass parts and writing second guitar and writing piano and writing organ and writing synthesizer and writing strings and writing, you know, like coming up with percussion, coming up with harmony, coming up, even writing the drums in a lot of cases, like, you know, kind of bouncing ideas off of whoever's been playing drums with me at the time, you know, making sure that everything fits with the song and fits in the fabric. And, uh, you know, and so I've been expanding my mind slowly but surely over the last 10 years. Maybe this will be the year where I can begin to write while I'm focusing on other stuff. (laughs) Gotcha. So you said something. So this is how an Into It Over It song comes about. What, how do you differentiate how a Into It Over It, Pet Cemetery, or There, There, There song comes into being? I don't write the... I don't write the um, the blueprint for there, there, there or pet symmetry. Gotcha. So that's much easier for me. I show up. I'm playing the bass. I just kind of, you know, Eric. Whether pet symmetry is the most recent example, so I'll I'll talk about this one because we just made a new record. Nice. But Eric will show up and he'll just have a few guitar parts. Uh huh. You know, and he'll kind of just be like, "Here's the idea I have for the verse. Here's the idea I have for the chorus, and then I've got this little thing for the bridge." And none of it's put together. He won't like show up and be like, you know, play us a three minute thing or a two minute thing, being like, "Okay, and here's the whole song, and here's the transition." You know, so he shows up with just three little riffs, and then he just shows them to Marcus and I, and Marcus and I will kind of twiddle with it for a minute, and you know, come up with ideas that we like, write some transitions, figure out how many times everything needs to go, you know, and and my job in that band more so is is taking Eric's you know skeleton ideas and organizing them, and that to me is a lot of fun because it's 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 very low pressure. It's like my favorite thing about working on songs. It's almost more of like a production role. And that, that, I get a big kick out of that, you know, and it's also, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not so married to any idea. And I mean, really, frankly, neither are Eric and Marcus because this, Pet Symmetry is kind of like our fun band. So none of us are married to anything. We're so willing to like change parts or, or be like, man, this part kind of stinks or like get rid of it, you know, like, and that really creates a super carefree attitude, which I'm sure people have gathered by that band and the songs that we write is that we can just have some fun with it and we're not thinking too hard. We're not so inside our own heads about it. Like it's just us writing songs and, and enjoying ourselves, you know, and there, there, there was pretty similar in that regard. Like Matt, that was a little more organized. Like Matt would just show up with a three minute song of just him playing his fucking ass off on the guitar. You know, like he just got this wild shit that he's playing. And you know, a lot of it's not in four, four, a lot of it's not organized by any sort of time. It's all feel. With that, Mike and I would just—it would be our job to put rhythm underneath of that. Gotcha. You know, and kind of, kind of make sense of his, of Matt's kind of, you know, balls to the wall guitar playing. Figure out how to make that catchy. Figure out how to make that memorable, and like not just sound like a million notes on the guitar. Like actually make it sound super intentional. You know, that, 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 that's also, a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Also a total challenge, but like you know, there's kind of like people have that like math rock brain. Uh-huh. You know, they just have like a really good sense of natural rhythm and, and understanding stuff that's a little off kilter or a little crooked, you know, and, and uh, when you find two other people, especially in, in the case of Mike and Matt, when you find two other people that can really grasp that and play more as listeners than musicians, which I would like to think I'm like that as well, where I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I have technical prowess. Okay. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this distinction between listeners and musicians. I mean, I feel like I can play, you know, yeah. like if someone was like play an A scale, I could do it. You know, or like play a D or play a G. You know, I have those things and I have like the technical proficiency. But really, there's like a certain brain of people that rather than just playing the part are listening to the people playing around them Uh and are understanding the changes and the feel, you know, whether to play behind the beat or ahead of it or or where the where the dip is or where the Mm. where the accent is or where the, you know, feeling that natural rhythm right away in somebody's part rather than just like being able to, you know, read sheet music and be like, oh, well, this is the thing. This is yeah, where, yeah, it is. Yeah. you know, the, this is the accent here. And it's very, you know, rather than being clinical, being, um, you know, you're actually feeling what you're playing. Yeah, I, I, I like to think of it a lot of times as like the head and the heart that like, the head knows the technical stuff, but the heart checks all that technical stuff and makes it emotional. Right. And sometimes you're able to find people that have both of that. And that's that's kind of the, the joy of there, there, there is, you know, Matt and Mike both have that. And I feel like I do too. And the three of us together when we're writing, it's, we barely, like, there's a song, we have a record called Analog Weekend. Mm -hmm. And my favorite song on that record is the third song. It's called Traveler's Insurance. The recorded version of that song is, I want to say the third time we ever played it together. We had been going off of demos and just sending each other recorded material, like, 
you know, Matt and I kind of gotten together and worked on it. And I was able to write my bass part. And we recorded the song to a click and sent it to Mike because we were all really busy. We weren't able to rehearse or get together. We booked the recording time and we're like, oh, well, we'll just figure that song out when we get there. Uh-huh. And so we ran the song once, you know, just being like, okay, we can play the song. We can get through it. And then we did three takes of it. And the th- I want to say the middle take of the three takes was the one that actually made the record. Huh. And that's what I mean. It's just, you know, we knew how to communicate musically without having to communicate vocally. We could just listen to each other and play off of each other's instincts immediately. That to me, yeah, like you said, head and heart, that's a really good way of putting it because that's exactly how that band felt. That's a, I, mean, I actually really believe that the only people, um, you know, outside of like, the music made for Berkeley students. That's that's the only people we really want to listen to, especially if we get into so-called emo music where we're putting high emotion as the barometer. I really believe that that's the only uh, musicians who anybody wants to listen to are the ones who get that music isn't an imitation or thinking about technical things. It's people who check that there's an emotion attached to all those things. Right. It needs to feel real. It needs to feel actualized. It needs to mm-hmm. feel a human being played it or a human being made it, you know, because ultimately that's what people want to hear is they want to hear themselves in the music that they're listening to. They want to hear the vulnerability in the music that they're yes. listening to. I think the vulnerability, I think, is something that so few people talk about. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious because you are, uh, I feel like in your lyrics, you're very hard on your sleeve. Did you ever have any experience with seeing vulnerability become something that really you've seen it if you open up more that it becomes more of a connection with the audience or anything like that yeah absolutely especially the shows these days the shows that i play solo are tenfold more special than they used to be when i got started Hmm. you know it's it's because it's become a special occasion and it's something that i do way more infrequently people who are coming to see me play solo now just genuinely want to listen to me play so instead of me having to put on kind of like a show and and you know yell over the crowd or like get the crowd's attention or be like the the hype guy cuz that's essentially what you are is the one of four on a tour mm-hmm. playing a solo fucking acoustic guitar you're the yeah. guy that like rile everybody up like yo you're psyched to be here right well here's a couple sad songs for you and then I'm going to get out <laughs> so you know but now I can I can really connect and I can sing the songs the way I wanted to and um, or the way that I feel com- most comfortable and just be myself. You know, either it's not a, it's not an act anymore. And I don't think it was a, necessarily an act in the first place, but it was definitely more of a, it wasn't as relaxed. It wasn't as comfortable. It wasn't just me like playing the guitar as if you were to come over to my house and watch me just sit and play guitar for a while. That's what people want to see. Yeah, I, I, I thousand percent agree. So let's get back to some of your process. Is there a common path when you're writing like of lyrics first, music first, any common things that you go through in your process it's actually guitar first and then uh guitar with drums Mm. that's been the common process for a long time probably probably about three lps worth of material four lps worth of material like actually you know what i guess 52 weeks was was like that too i it's yeah i mean guitar is my primary instrument so i start there and then uh would get together with a drummer because that's the one thing i don't know how to do so i always felt like you need the most time to work on something like that I could kind of do bass or a second guitar a little quicker or a little, with a little less preparation. If a drummer is playing music with me, they need to know, you know what the song is with plenty of time to rehearse. Yes, so, so especially uh, with the uh, drum parts that your music has. Right, exactly. It takes time and preparation, and you really want to talk about the songs and make sure you get in there with the, with the riffs and know, what you're, you know, know where the accents are and know where the accents fall. But we would write music, Josh and I, whether it was Josh or Nick, who was the drummer before Josh, we would be writing based on how can we make the guitar parts the most interesting or how can we... How can we make the drums the most interesting? So generally, going into any studio studio situation, it's always the channel left guitar and the drums. Uh-huh. And that's all we'll have. And I'll write vocals around the accents of the drums or the accents of the guitar. So we'll, that's, that's generally why if you're listening to the Intuit Over records or the Pet Sim records or even the They're There records, the vocals are falling almost directly with the drum accents, almost all the time. You know, and I'll be very intentional with what I'll say. I'll, be, I'll sit and labor over trying to find the right word or the, white, or the right turn of phrase to have them have the lyrics consistently hit with the rhythm of the song. <laughs> yep. It's a painstaking process, but vocals are usually what comes last. So now when you say they come last, how deep into the process? Like you're talking about like, are you doing those in the studio right before? Like where, where do they usually come in? It's a combination of both. On standards, actually, standards was the first record I was the most prepared. Intersections was the same way. We, I really had, I really went out of my way to get vocals done really far in advance because I didn't want to have to be laboring over lyrics in the studio. But proper, 
I want to say like four songs on proper. The vocals were written the night before they were tracked. Oh man. Yeah. And it was like in the studio on like day 10 when we only had 14 days period, you know, like writing stuff right away. Looking back, I'm actually more proud of the lyrics on that record than a lot of other things I've done, but it was definitely just, you know, at one point I think write it right might've been the last set of lyrics I wrote. And it was just like, I just need to figure something out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. I probably could have sat and thought about that song a little more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, it's, it's it's that funny thing of that. Like, I uh, while I was researching this new book I've been writing, like I, I read a really good thing about that. What people don't, when people talk about like the deadline crunch, is that sometimes too, it's like what's nice about the deadline crunch is that it's like people think it's that the forcing, but what it really is is it forces you to empty the inspiration tank right, right. then and there and. People always think about it as on the after side of like, well, there's the deadline, da 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 da. You had to do it. It's like, well, it's also just the thing of like, you're going to scrape the bottom of that can for yeah. everything you've been inspired by and everything you have, and you're going to search way harder than when you're not there uh, on deadline. It's either that, or I feel like the, you know the lyrics in those situations are always just the most candid because you're you're you don't have any time to come up with a poetic way to say anything. Ah, you're saying it, you're just telling it like it is at that point. You're like. This is how I feel, and this is why, or this is the story, and this is what it was. You know, it's just like very bare bones, very straight to the point, very honest. That, that's a you great know? point. And um, you know, there's actually a. Uh, let me see if I can look up look up this song for you really quick. I'm a big fan of Pedro the Lion. Yes, yes. Uh, controls so, controls one of my uh, favorite Pedro, records ever. Pedro the Lion has an album called Winners Never Quit, which is one of my favorite albums of his. Yep. And uh, and there's a song on that record, A Mind of Her Own. Uh-huh. A Mind of Her Own is my favorite Pedro the Lion song. Uh-huh. And I've read in interviews that that is his literally least favorite Pedro the Lion song. <laughs> he hates that song. And that makes me and, and the reason that he doesn't like it is because he felt like like what we're talking about right now that the lyrics were rushed, that he didn't get to actually say what he wanted to say or he felt like it was just kind of thrown together, but the there's a lyric at the end of that song where you know, you put down that telephone, you're not calling anyone. And in the way that Oh it, yeah, yeah, no, I know the song now. Yeah, yeah. I'm terrible it's with song like, names. It just has this evil crescendo to it. Uh-huh. And it, it really, in me at least, when I listen to it, it just evokes this really dark emotion. Like, man, like, I, you know, I believe in the conviction of what he's saying, and I can imagine that scenario, like a man standing with a knife and the woman holding the phone and, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like that kind of standoff. And to me, that really resonated at the time. Like, I'd never heard, you know, music and lyrics kind of coalesce like that to create just a scary vibe. You know, and I and I actually think the kind of that slapdash, maybe last minute, just kind of getting stuff out and saying what you have to say, and probably you know wearing it a little more, a little more on your sleeve than you maybe normally would. I think that really contributes to the song. I think that makes that song feel really special. I think it's an awesome song. I, I, a thousand percent. It's so funny too because like it, it is true. Like he was being so honest on that record. Like some of those lyrics are just the most honest, dark lyrics. Like options and all that like ever and like the idea that he rushed that out i think your hypothesis is dead on i think yeah. that's a really really great point you know and i and i've you know and i always get a kind of a kick at first i was i was really upset that that was you know his one of his least favorite songs he'd ever made and but you know later realizing why and then thinking about it i think it makes it a little more feel a little more special to me you know that's that's real, like really he could, he could just write some you know he's just not you know he's stressed out and he's just writing the first thing that comes to mind and it's and it can be like you know somebody's favorite song that's awesome you know that's kind of relieving from a from a creative standpoint like not having to necessarily overthink everything i'm writing singing or saying because sometimes those off the cuff kind of just careless or rushed moments are what mean the most to people uh, i i think you th it's so funny i have so many of these conversations i've never had that one and i think you're so right about it i've never thought of it that way <laughs> thanks so you've worked with a lot of great producers under your own uh, records, but you've also been producing records. Is there anything you've learned from other producers that you think is some great wisdom? Oh my God. Like, I mean, every time I've been doing production on records since around the time Intersections was getting finished. I think we, the first record I worked on was the first You Blew It record, or not the first one. I'm sorry. Keep doing what you're doing. The second, the second LP. I think we were, I was getting like the final mixes of intersections while that was happening. So I just come off this recording experience with Brian Deck, <clears throat> which was uh, a really long experience, but also kind of a liberating one. You know, it was the first time I'd really sort of began to step outside of myself and look at things with a little bit more perspective and start taking someone else's word 
on stuff. Like, not that I gave Brian much of a shot. I was still, like, so inside my own head with what I needed to make and how I needed to make it that I really didn't give him all of the creative control that I should have. But that really, you know, as far as, like, a sliding scale between when I made proper and when I made standards, my level of, of being able to let go has increased dramatically. And what do you, so what do you attribute that to? I attribute that to Brian, actually. I think he was, that was the first time where I really sat and thought about it. And, and, you know, with perspective later after that recording session, found myself saying a lot of times that I thought Brian was right, you know, and I should have listened to him at the time, or I should have taken his advice at the time, not all the time, but there's definitely like some, some moments in that session where looking back, he definitely had the right idea. And when you're so, when you're so invested in your own project and you've heard your own songs, you know, hundreds of times in a rehearsal space, you really begin to fall in love with a certain way that they're, a certain way that they sound, a certain way that they feel. And you don't have that fresh perspective anymore. You're not like a person hearing a song for the first time yep. and being able to notice things for what they are. Yeah, I keep objectivity. I, 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 I like say in my new book, like that you're in a constant race on a, a judgment balance scale, like that you're like running along that scale that like, if you develop too much, then you're not able to get objectivity when somebody tells you something. You develop too little, it's not really good enough, and you're going to have to rely on other people to give you all your suggestions. And it's like finding that balance in the middle is so it's so hard, and very few people put enough thought into that in their creative process. Right. So I'm self-aware enough to know that the records that I'm working on will not be a band's biggest record in their career. And I feel like it's my job, having started, you know, like I'm doing 52 weeks in 12 towns with, you know, some people locally, to, into moving to do proper with Ed Rose in Kansas, into doing, you know, a record with Brian Deck, into doing a record with John Vanderslice, and like slowly kind of stepping up my studio experiences versus my like working with other people production experiences. To be that person that I would really want out of a producer which is someone to be honest and give me that perspective, you know, and to, and to be very clear about if I feel like a decision is good or bad to let a band know. Uh -huh. And at the same time to really fully contribute in a way that is as if I were another member of the band, not just like allow a band to go in and do stuff that I don't think is cool or yes. like, at least without good argument, you know, like, cause definitely I'm not always right. And I know that, and I'm aware totally. of that. And usually when I'm working on a record, I'm, you know, working in tandem with somebody else. So also I need perspective sometimes as well, but, you know, at least feeling comfortable enough to suggest an idea if I have one, you know, and, you know, I feel like if you're, if you're coming to me and you're going to pay me for a service, which is to help you make an album, it's my job as an employee and as a person who's working closely on a project and wants the best for everyone, including, you know, whether it's be myself or the band or the record or the song, you know, or the moment in the song, to not feel afraid to voice that opinion or talk about it. And I think that's a big thing for bands, like the learning curve, like to be able to, because generally if I'm doing a record, I'm doing maybe their first real record. Mm -hmm. They haven't had anyone ever give them advice or, or try to guide them or help, you know, <laughs> like usually yeah. I remember recording demos with old bands of mine. Like you're just working with a dude who's, you know, hitting buttons. Yes. They don't care. So I want to brace bands for, you know, the experience after mine if they have one, which I hope they all do. At the same time, help them create something that they're really proud of, something that where they'll remember the experience being a really positive one and remember remember feeling like they were pushed. Yeah, you know, They were pushed to become a better player, pushed to become a better singer, pushed to become um, a better lyricist or a better, you know, a better creative force or just uh, you know, like knowing things to look for, like getting stronger at uh, composition or stronger at getting good takes or, or just a level of confidence, you know, feeling confident in the studio, not feeling afraid, not being, you know, how many people that you're recording feel afraid to mess up? Yeah. I, I, it's like, I, no, we are in the studio. You are allowed to mess up as much as you want. You want to just make the, be the best you can be, you know, like there's no reason to feel afraid. It's a, I think it's like that, that, uh, there's a great line in that Pixar book from Ed Catmull that, uh, the only way you do good things is by making mistakes and totally. lots of them. And, getting past those mistakes to get to the good things. Yeah, and like making sure people don't feel like they have to apologize if they mess up. You know, like a, a big thing when I'm making records as well is that if you listen to them, there is no editing. Uh-huh. The drums aren't edited, the vocals aren't edited, the guitars aren't edited. Nothing is edited. So, 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 like, so talk to me about why you see that fit. Because I feel like a band, if they're writing a part, if they're singing a part, if they have an idea for a part, they can play the part. They can do the part and they can do it right. Or they can do it great. I shouldn't say right. They can do it great. So, you know, I take really good, especially vocally, vocal takes are huge to me. There's never been an ounce 
a, a drop of auto tune on any record that I've worked on. Mm. So you know, with other bands. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> I will admit to using it on myself every once in a while, but that's that's <laughs> not yeah. either or there. I, I, mean, but, I think this is the right goal. I just I think I think think sometimes it becomes the thing of like when I'm like, all right, you've done twenty takes, and we're not getting that note. I'm going to tune the note. Oh, well, so that's when I that's when I start getting into psychological stuff, uh-huh. which is like another big another big thing that I really like doing in the studio with bands. Like, say for example, I just did the record with um, this band Signals Midwest. And Max couldn't hit this, Max the singer, he couldn't hit this one vocal line. And we were trying, we were trying, we were trying, and he was starting to think about it so hard that he really couldn't do it. And I was like, Max, you know what? I need you to go outside, I need you to run around the block. And so we went outside, he's like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, get out there, man, go, go take a run. And so he ran around the block, came in, first take, nailed the note. And it was like, yeah, there you go. You're not thinking about it. You're hyped up, your heart rate's up. It's as if you're playing a show, you know, you're feeling good you're feeling excited and that's how that'll be the move then on how to get a good take instead of you know instead of having to tweak somebody and i think that makes it makes a band feel proud you know they can listen to their they can show their family they can show their you know their kids or whatever and they be like i did that that's me you know like i worked hard and i got this take that i really liked i got this moment that i really liked that felt really special you know and and i don't care if a take is perfect i care Uh if a take makes me feel something yes that's it i want to feel convinced that that, that, that is that that is the right way to do it, and I think sadly we're getting um, a whole generation that is uh, looking at metrics instead of feeling emotions. Right. That's a very disheartening part of music. Yeah, I you know it's, it's funny with with the vocal thing and talking about about like right around the block. Uh, I hung out with a vocal coach recently. She showed me this medical paper about how singing deprives your brain of so much oxygen that you stop making good decisions. <laughs> And so one of the things I've been doing and she showed me is we now just do uh, take a like we don't want the singer to get so cold that they're not warmed up anymore. But take a minute, do some heavy, deep breathing, even some meditation if they're into the hippie thing and get your breath again. And then all of a sudden they could hit notes and think clearly again. Yeah, I've never gotten that deep in it. I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a Zen to it, but there's definitely an Mm -hmm. aspect of getting too inside your own head. You know, and I I made that record with John and John's, John's whole thing. He's like, man, if you're not hitting it in the first three takes, you're never going to hit it again. And I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I agree with his sentiment. I agree with the fact that like generally the first couple takes are always some of the best ones because you're excited and you're hyped up and you know, it's like a, you're about to try something new. You know, you're not thinking about it at all. You're just like excited about singing the songs. You're not thinking about how good the take is. You're just thinking about giving it a shot, you know, and, you know, and it's like that with guitar too. Like you're you're not totally comfortable, so you're still finding moves, and that's when when you're doing stuff that you're not comfortable doing. That's when really magical things happen all the time. So I I, I, I agree. You, you know, it's funny. Like uh, this is a big Ross Robinson thing too. And when I used to work with him, the way he'd get people out of it is like he'd literally like you know he'll throw a Lego toy at you or something. So you you stop thinking about your technicalities and start just feeling again, right. and start doing that. And I think that that's really the thing is like. I don't know that I necessarily agree about a three-take rule, but like I do agree that the problem is that people start overthinking and getting in the wrong headspace after a while instead of just feeling it and feeling like they can do it. After three takes, it's like, well, why haven't I done this right yet? Yeah. And start too much. Oh, no, too I mean, much and everybody's guilt, every performer is guilty of it. Like you know, that's and yep. that's uh, you know, I feel like it really helps, in, in, at least in my experience, to start making records with songwriters because they understand. They've been on the other side of the glass. They know like. Like doing the most recent You Blew It record, like coming into all these scenarios where the, where people are getting stressed out or sad or they're not playing something right or you know they you're you're talking to them about uh, maybe changing a line or changing a melody or changing a guitar line and it's like yo I've been on the other side of the glass man I know like yeah. I know you know it's like <laughs> I'm with yeah. all the way but I'm also here to be your 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 voice of reason, your, your coach, your guidance, your, your conscious, you know, like I'm here to be that extra force to help you do something that you're not going to regret later or do something that you can be really proud of later or do something, inform you of something that is awesome, even if you don't think so, you know. Piggybacking off of that, we have like a saying on this podcast of like, you know, there's a scale of like, there's the Steve Albini side of production where you maybe comment on a take, but you're never going to comment on the song itself. And then you have a John Feldman who fully rewrites band songs. Where do you see yourself most often on that? I'm right in the middle. I, I, I want a band to be themselves. And ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, the band always has a final say. I will do my best to, I will do my best to take on that production role and assist and offer my opinion and 
help rewrite where I feel like maybe necessary or help reimagine if I feel like it should be necessary. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, the band is who is who is paying me as a higher contract. The band has hired me to do this job. And if they don't want me to do it, that's their prerogative. You know, so I, yeah, I kind of toe the line right down the middle. I'm not trying to change bands. I'm not trying to rewrite anybody's songs, but I am trying to get the most out of a band song. And generally for me, that, that usually means just chopping stuff out. You know, like, yes, it's usually just like, why, why do you need three bridges in a row? <laughs> you know, you finish singing this line and then you play the, so- the part an extra six times. Why do you do that? You know, like, just get back to the chorus, get back to the end. Like, if you can't say everything you need to say in two and a half, three minutes, then you better have a really good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Defend it for me. Right. So let's get into some of what makes you, you musically. What is a perfect record somebody else has made and what about it makes it perfect? I have a few bands that I'm really, I really, really love. They're really, really important to me. They were kind of life-changing touchstone bands, in my opinion. Um, one of the biggest ones is Pearl Jam. I'm such a massive Pearl Jam fan. Okay. But there was a moment in my mind between Versus and Yield, which is like six records in 10 years or five, four records in 10 years, where I just feel like their catalog is flawless. Like there's not a single song that I don't like. And it's because they're challenging. They were at that time kind of challenging what it was to be grunge. You know, they were just writing songs and it didn't matter if one was this beautiful acoustic ballad or if another one was this like ripping kind of Fugazi style punk song or the guitar tones are weird, which is cool. They're making guitar kind of not sound like guitar. Like they're making really interesting sonic guitar choices, which for guitar rock, it's so easy to be a boring guitar rock band. I'm guilty of it. I've been in them, you know, like, I, you know, I know. I thought they were at, at least at that time, the most creative major label rock band. I'm going to have to listen to these now because I, like, I totally didn't listen to them because I was in high school when 10 came out and that was the worst thing ever. Oh, I mean, it's, it, 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 that's, and I'm guilty of that doing that too, like judging a band based on who their fans are or, yeah. you know, what, but, you know, they hit me at the right time. I'm 32. So when, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I was about 10 years old when In Utero came out, which, like, I love, love that record. And I was listening to Grunge. I pretty cool. I am happy to admit I had cool parents who got me exposed to cool music early and, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're excited when rock made a comeback, you know, in the nineties, they were, they were psyched. So, but that, that there was something about Pearl Jam that resonated a little differently. It didn't seem so aggressive as their counterparts. It didn't, it, it felt more thought out. It felt more, it felt more real. When they're making mm. those records to tape, there's no, there's no fucking bullshit. There's no gimmicks on those records. Like, I mean, I guess everybody was at the time, but like they were making stuff that sounded almost like futuristic for rock music, hmm. you know, and like a little more interesting, like a really high quality sounding who rec- who record or like a really high quality sounding. I shouldn't use the term high quality, but it sounded modern, okay. like a modern take on something old, which, and I still haven't heard anything like it. You know, if I go to like more like other new modern rock records, like there's something so slick about modern rock records and Pearl Jam doesn't have to be slick and they can write killer rock songs, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to revisit these uh, <laughs> later this week and, 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 and see how I feel about all this. I'm, I'm, I'm like trusting and skeptical right on the well, fence. There's, like, right a, there's now. like, they have like an indie rock period in the middle. It's like between Vitology and Yield, which is like albums okay. in the center. And um, it was kind of when they were going through the whole like fuck Ticketmaster thing and mm-hmm. rebelling. Yeah, I, remember. I like that. Yeah, they were like rebelling against modern, modern rock and, and uh, popularity, even though I just saw them play, Two nights sold out Wrigley Field like three months ago. So that's like, you know, 100,000 tickets. It's kind of wow. in like two days. So they're still huge. It's just like yeah. this, uh, but their rejection, popularity in terms of like money, you know, like, and yeah. big business involved in music. They were really, they rejected that. So I thought there was something admirable about that as well. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, I think that they, they literally were the only band that had uh, the courage to go against the grade and say, this is not right. And we're still fighting that today. I mean, like New York, we just passed the law today yep, the about what they were right, fighting the ticket against. Fires? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Literally today. It's like, it's unbelievable how many years later. It's like 15 years, 20 years. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So those are, the, those are some perfect records to me. I really love how it feels to be something on by Sunday real estate. That was kind of yeah. a touchstone in my life when that record came out. You know, I think it sounds beautiful. It sounds lush. It sounds natural. It's, it's vulnerable and also confident and like, you know, it's, you know, and for being a comeback record too, it's easily their best in my opinion. And you know, really? I like the one after it. Back. Rising Tide, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's also the produ- production. That that drum sounds one of my favorite oh, drums. Drum sound fucking killer on that record, but the, I don't know if the songs are as cool. 
Ah, uh, yeah, I, I, you know what's the funny thing is like if you give me songs, I would t- I would have to take like almost half of each for me. Interesting. You know, I saw them a bunch on that tour. The songs were were kick ass on tour. Like live, they were just sounding yeah. fucking awesome. But I mean, and then when I say that too, there's no record that they've made that I don't like. Like I, I like them all. You know, it's I like every song. I like every album. It's just that that one in particular, how it feels, just really blew me away. I. I that there's there's something really unique. Like there's some records that like no one has ever like captured the tone of again. Like as much as you get like imitators, and you'll get the poor imitation of it. I've never even heard an imitator get near that the the feeling of that record. Yeah, yeah, no, none of them. And they were like you know twenty three or twenty four. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, like it's cr- what, cr- crazy. What? <laughs> So my next question was going to be five of the favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth. So I think we got a little into that. Is there any other things you can tell um, me about? Any other big records? I, I remember really loving the record The Age of Octane by the man Braid. That was, really, uh-huh. that was a big yeah, deal for me. That was the first time I'd ever heard anything that was, was tricky like that. You know, kind of like incorporating like a jazz time signature into a into a pop song. I, I feel like now that you're saying this, I can hear a lot of your drum parts in his... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Roy, Roy the first drummer... For sure, you know, like he's loose in this like jazzy way, and you know, it just feels like that. That's a really good example. That record, especially, is a really good example of a band listening to each other and really playing off of each other. And it's not like you know, it isn't perfect, but they move in sync. You know, like the tempos fluctuate, yes. but they're always moving like a wave. You know, like just a ebb and flow that just keep them together. And they, you know, they oh, it's beautiful. It's like that, and I think that's probably a big part of me desiring that in my own music you know feeling like a band can hang back or, or get ahead of the beat you know and have it feel like an entity like a full entity you know like four people connected at the mind you know so yeah I, I i got a big kick out of that record um i love uh songs from the big chair by tears for fears that one is a huge one wow i like that yeah that's a great so record. by peter gabriel that is like a that is a so by peter gabriel is a triumph in record production that is just like one of the most beautiful perfect sounding albums it just it, it kills me it's not on spot oh doesn't it crush you i like want to listen to it all the time i don't know there's like live versions of the songs but it's not the same I, you know yeah we're going through the same 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 digital struggle here <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one's a big one you know the first time i heard music for airports by brian Eno, that's that was a big mm-hmm. thing that was a big deal to me like discovering ambient music and you know textured bliss that i that was like a whole new side of music for me like that i've kind of been going through this phase in the last two or three years where that's generally most of what's being listened to in our house is, you know, ambient or instrumental music. And I was always a big fan of, you know, like guitar bands. Like there was a band called Tristeza from San Diego. Oh yeah. yeah. I love Tristeza, you know, and and bands that sounded like that. And, but really falling deep into like kind of the obscure Antilles, you know, OG catalog, like stuff like that has, has been really satisfying for me. So how about three of your favorite producers? Brian Eno, Dave Lenoir, and I really like Chris Wallace's records. Mm, yeah, I really love how is good he still they produ- sound. Is he produ- is they he sound is good. he still producing? And they sound smart. There's never anything. He makes so much sound with just one or two instruments. It, it, it was funny. I was listening to a podcast with somebody else who worked with him, and they were saying that Steely Dan actually called him in after the whatever the big Death Cab record was, the one with like Soul Beats Body. Oh, and they, Steely yeah. Dan. Called called him in because they felt like he finally did their sound better than them. <laughs> you know, there, if you listen closely, especially to those Death Cab records, there is maybe only three or four things happening at once at yeah, any given time, it, and there's and never more. There's barely any more. Like if you're especially that middle era, which is my favorite era, which is like photo album to plants. That's like there's just three records in a row where there'll be a whole song that is just a single synth and a couple drums, and then. A fleeting, you know, a guitar line will just pop in as a melody for 20, 30 seconds and then just pop out. And it's like, they're so, the song sounds, they were recorded so easily, but you know that so much time went into perfecting the, just the tones of these three things, you know. And that quest is admirable, you know, sitting, yeah, sitting yeah. There, making sure that you find the right sound, making sure that you're, that the, that the tones you're getting are going to supply the greatest emotional response. I, you know, it's, it's funny because stringing it together with Brian Eno, there's a, an interview with him. I will not know which one because I've probably watched 100 hours of them over the years. But uh, he talks about this, that on records you need to make a decision that you really can only have five things going on ever at once. And the fifth one is kind of, 
even the one that you really have to rethink if it should even be there. That it really is it has like to be like the icing on the cake, cake, you know. Yeah, like so, but you have accompaniment, single melody, bass being the bridge between the accompaniment, and then drums being the rhythm if it's a rock band. And anything you're doing past that, you better have the greatest reason for doing it, and there needs to be large debate if it really is do- doing something. Yeah, and that's, that's about the it. biggest so, learning experience for me this year. And I, you know, and I would love to tack John Vanderslice's name on that list. He's just like a nice. It really, it really made me rethink how I view the sonic field and getting the most out of the least. I am so guilty of always wanting to add an overdub. I'm so guilty of it. And I'm, I'm not confident enough in myself or my playing to feel like a single guitar line or a single, a single melody line would, it would be strong enough. Like there needs to be something there to, to, uh, else to occupy the listener when really, you know, I learned this past year that those things more often than not serve as a distraction and are always not the most effective. Now, my favorite songs on the record that we made are the ones that are just a single guitar and a vocal line. You know, like those mm. are like, or the ones that are like the least that have the least going on, or at least like the stuff that is going on is just hyper intentional. And that was massive for me because I was falling into this this feedback loop of just needing to add this and add that and add this and add that. And I'm, you know, where him and I differ is I'm also a big fan of if you got an idea, let's lay it down. But when it comes time to mix it, we're gonna pull probably ten of them away, you know. <laughs> like, and then that is also a really cool way of coming up with interesting song ideas because sometimes that like fifth overdub winds up being the one thing that makes it, and then you're building a song around this weird overdub that you would have never thought about otherwise, you know. Yeah, I, I like the idea of going a little too far so you know you've actualized, and then at least pulling back one or two layers because you went too far, so that way you know that you've at least explored enough options. That was the big thing with the newest You Blew It record that we made was that they were they were, they love guitar. They love uh-huh. guitar. Those guys love the guitar. And sometimes the there'd be fucking way too many guitars. You're like, dude, there's five guitars here. You don't need that many guitars. You know, so we're like pulling guitar lines away, you know, just like carving, carving away. Like if, as if you were like, you know, those giant, you know, you maybe you have them in New York City, like they're like kebab sandwich places that's just yes. depending <laughs> on the stick. We're just like the, carving the car stick, away. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That's funny. And so, but then they'd, you know, we'd, we'd be like, you, all right, leave the room, leave the room, you know, and we'd, we'd take a few things out and it would just be like this one little lead line or this one little pretty line that was like kind of maybe the guitar line they thought was the afterthought. And then we'd show them, like we'd finish mixing it, we'd bring them in and we'd be like, all right, now check this out. You know, and then, you know, sound would cut out to just this one thing and they're like, whoa, you know, like blown away by the effectiveness of just taking things away. Huh, very cool. I, I'm actually, I was curious. I, I, whenever, you know, a band that's thought of it as seed goes to a producer outside the seed to me, as somebody who's been doing this for so long, I'm always shocked. What brought you to John Vanderslice? Because I've always been a huge fan of his stuff, but obviously, you know, it's just so funny. It's like no young bands, never mind any band that's associated with the word emo usually would, I feel like, think to go to him. Um, well, I was a big fan of his records. Gotcha. You know, but he was actually my, he was not even on my list. Huh. You know, we had a couple other producers that we were really interested in, and uh, we'd kind of hit them up, each of them up. You know, we'd sent them the demos that we made in the cabin. We're like, hey, what do you think about doing this? And one of them turned us down because he didn't really want to be making rock records anymore for a while. And then another turned us down because he just won the Grammy. And then, <laughs> so both of them were like, hey, separately of each other, independently of each other, we're like, hey, we can't do this thing, but you should check out John Vanderslice. Huh. And so, you know, by the, you know, the second time we'd gotten that reference, it was like, well, yeah, you know, I'm a really big fan of John's music. I dig his studio you know like i've like read read and 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 paid attention to his studio read about and paid attention to his studio and for people who who don't know like he's saying is like what is it state of the art 1972 yeah well he wants to make music music from the future on machinery from the past (laughs) yes that's a great saying yeah i had not heard But he has the state of the art like the nicest gear that literally the nicest gear insane stuff that you wouldn't even think about like millions of dollars in microphones and 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 you know six Studer Goldline tape machines like right off the assembly line went straight to his studio they were like new old stock that had never been touched until they showed up a tiny telephone you know and he's got the best of the best and he knows tone he knows sound and he knows how to get the best out of the equipment that he has he knows his equipment so intimately which i love 
I love that. I'm such a gear dork. You know, I, I want to know. I want to know it all. Show me how to use it. Show me how to get intimate with it, you know. And, but yeah, so I hit up John, you know, we were kind of like, yeah, I guess he only does like one or two records a year, you know, and, and I hit him up and um, we talked on the phone and immediately hit it off. You know, he knew exactly what our references were and what we were kind of going for and, you know, at least what our touchstones were when we were writing music and he was great. Immediately felt comfortable. I think it took like two days for us to kind of fall into our rhythm and um, and get our communication down and, and, you know, so many moments where if I did disagree or if I was kind of losing my mind, like he knew exactly what to say to talk me down, exactly what to say to get me to listen. You know, he's, he's very aware of, of his surroundings and the people that he's with and he knows how to get the most out of them. You know, he, he, he pays attention to quirks and pays attention to like the things people really want to hear or people or that even if, even if he maybe disagrees with what he's saying, he knows that if he says this thing, it can produce results. Some would maybe call that manipulation. I don't think he's manipulative, but you know, like, I, I, I mean, you, you know, I, I, when people get into that one with manipulation with that stuff, it's, it's not always manipulation. It's knowing how to say things to people that when it's really important, that doesn't trigger them. Like it's even just like learning that thing of that. If you say, Hey, I really like this about the song and then tell them the problem instead of telling them the problem first. It's not manipulating. Yeah. It's getting people to put their guard down so they can have objectivity. Yeah, again. that's the compliment sandwich. And I think that was the, mm -hmm. you know, aside from all the wild tone things I learned from John, really the biggest thing I learned from my recording experience with John, at least in, in reference to becoming a better producer myself, is how to communicate with a band mm -hmm. and what to say, what not to say, how to make people feel comfortable, how to make people feel welcome, how to make people feel appreciated. And, um, and he's really great at all of those things. He, he really uh, is a loyal and good friend. And he takes care of the people he's recording. He wants, he wants them to feel, at first and foremost, he wants them to feel healthy emotionally and mentally. You know? And if I was having a rough day and he knew it, he knew what to say and what to do to like, help me feel better. So to shift gears and close this out, we talked about your booking agent telling you you're not going on tour until you make another record. I think one of the hardest things for younger bands is they don't know who to listen to and what to listen to when they're getting advice from the suits. Do you have any advice you can impart about how you decipher the advice from the suits? Well, I can, I can sleep soundly at night knowing that ultimately any decision that's been made regarding the music I do or the people that I work with has been my own. You know, it's, mm. I've, off, I've been, I've offered, I've been offered guidance and accepted guidance in certain scenarios, but for the most part, you know, I try to stay well-educated from all sides. I try to, you know, weigh the pros and cons and any decision that I'm making, you know, and sometimes I get a little lax and, you know, and sometimes I need to just take a mental break from those things. But, you know, I actually kind of, I don't know if I know how to answer that question a hundred percent. It's mm. like, you know, I can't, I can't tell if, if anyone has uh, the right idea or what's going to work and what doesn't. I mean, how much of music is a, is a fucking, you know, you're just, just darts are being thrown at a wall, you know, and, and sometimes there's justice, but most times there aren't, there isn't, you know, they're, they like the bands that sometimes get popular are not the ones that deserve it. And the bands that are the greatest yes. bands just sometimes fall into obscurity and they're, you know, and it's not fair and it's not, it doesn't always work out in people's with, with people's like kind of like dream scenario of how things would go but that's kind of that's life you know what I mean so I can only make decisions based on what I have what information I have at the time and what my tools are at the time and I can look back on the career that I've had at least in being involved with Intuit over it with pride because I never mm. I've been in charge of my destiny this whole time and I and I ultimately feel like that's what a band should should do is is you know, they know their band, a band knows their band better than anybody else. You know, they know their band better than the management does, the booking agent does, the uh, label does, more than the PR person does. Like, they know their band better than anyone else. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, they should be the ones ultimately pulling the trigger on any decision. I like that. I think that, 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 I think that we found the advice. Oh, sure. well, I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate for a band to be themselves and then, like, I don't know. <laughs> Well, a lot of bands don't know how to do that. They don't. They, they don't have the, the 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 confidence to do it. Right. So I think that that's a big thing is how you instill that confidence in the that they, that that is what they're supposed to well, do. Well, there is. A, you know, I have a I have a saying that I've lived by most of my life, and I feel like bands favorite band, a person's favorite band should be their own band. I don't think mm. that's tacky. I don't think that's lame. You have the ability to make whatever music you want. You have the ability to create the art that you want to see happen in the world. Your, the, your favorite shit should be your own shit. Like you should be making the stuff that is the stuff you want to hear. And so 
I don't think it's lame when a band is proud of their own record or loves their own record. I don't think it's lame to listen to your own material and be excited about it. I don't think it's lame to, uh, like, I don't feel like, you know, you got to be fucking too cool and act like your stuff, like, doesn't matter. Like, it's important to you. It's your art. It's what you've worked on so passionately for days and months and weeks and years and fucking put your time, your full time and energy into. And it's like an extension of yourself. It's your creative entity of yourself. You know, and so I get really bummed when bands say that they aren't excited about the stuff they have coming up or that they, yeah. you know, that they're like just kind of phoning when bands start phoning it in. It's like, yo, man, you get to play music in a band for maybe a maybe a living, you know, like <laughs> you know, you're afforded to do this amazing thing, maybe see the world or like have a great experience or travel with your friends, you know, and you know, when people aren't proud of their work and people aren't proud of what they've done or, or what they represent then I always tell people to, to stop. Uh, you know, the first uh, words of my new book are basically <laughs> this, that I, the only bands I've ever worked with, like when, anytime I've been in the studio with like a band that's put out like classic big records, whether it's like The Cure or Lip Biscuit, that's what they were doing when they were making their classic records, is they were making the record they wanted to hear. Yeah. They were, you know, like Ann Rand has that saying, as much as I hate to quote her disgusting self, that like you make the art that you want to hear because somebody else isn't making it. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. And yes, I, th I really like the way you're putting it of you're supposed to be your own favorite band. You're supposed to make what you want to hear. Yeah. There's no, it's not lame. It isn't lame. If your favorite band's your own, it's not lame. Yo, you know what my favorite bands are? My own bands. You know why? Because I mm -hmm. fucking love making music with these people. I love putting this time and work and energy into my material. I love, uh, of course, I love the songs that I'm writing because I'm, you know, like I wrote them, you know, like I, I love that music. That's the music I want to make. So it's, you know, of course, <laughs> you know, like it seems like a no brainer to me. Like, you know, why wouldn't your favorite band be your own? It's just like mind boggles, you know, I would say that that's a great note to close on, but I'm going to ask you one last thing for self-promotion's sake. Tell me what you have coming up and tell me what you've, uh, what's not out that people will be hearing soon or what just came out. Yeah, we're going, uh, Pet Symmetry is doing a weekend tour starting tomorrow. We're playing in Chicago, Madison and Minneapolis with Kevin Devine. So we've been rehearsing all week for that. Then Intuit Over It goes to Japan on December 11th. And we're doing about seven shows in Japan, like three or four in Tokyo. And then we're in Osaka, Nagoya, and Chiba. And then starting next year, man, I got some sweet time off. I'm probably going to be, you know, hopefully making something or, or recording something or, yeah, being, doing something creative in the Chicago winter because you know it's going to be brutally cold here. Ooh, <laughs> man, I, 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 I spent one winter there when a girlfriend was working for Obama. And, man, that is a winter on uh, a lot worse than a New York winter and a New York winter is bad enough. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 